Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real-life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Taylor Lott. He is a commercial real estate investor focused on multifamily and self-storage. To date, he's acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million in real estate acquisitions. His podcast, The Passive Wealth Strategy Show, helps listeners escape the Wall Street casino and invest in Main Street and covers a variety of real estate investing strategies. So Taylor, I, Taylor and I had a good conversation about his background, how he got started in real estate, how he's grown his business. We talk about the tech tools he's using. He's talk, we talk about lessons learned on some of his projects, working with third-party property management. We talk about self-storage as an asset class versus uh, multifamily, which he does a lot of as well. Talk about what's on the horizon for him. We talk a lot about different books that he's read and that have been influential for his business. So a lot of value to be had there in my conversation with Taylor. Um, I think you're going to enjoy it. Before we get in, a message from our sponsors. Apartment Educators is a complete ecosystem that shows you how to go out and put together the team and buy and operate large apartment complexes. The, uh, complexes. This is a company that I am involved in uh, as a principal. And secondly, DJE is our investment company. This is a DJE podcast. And if you're not currently seeing projects that we launch and you'd like to, you can sign up at djetexas.com to get uh, access there, have a conversation with our team. We can send you case studies and all that good stuff. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Taylor. Taylor, welcome to the show. Great to have you. How are you today, sir? Oh, Devin, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's kick it off with um, a little bit about your background. You're an investor, you're a podcaster, but uh, I always like to understand how folks came to real estate and specifically if there was like an inflection point or aha moment that you had that, uh, that that sent you down this entrepreneurial path. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to dive into that. And you know, for folks who listen to my show, if you guys uh, tune into my show, you'll hear me talk about escaping the Wall Street casino and building wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. And then really, that that is my journey. That that I talk about that because that's a, a the position that I'm coming from. So if we're rewinding the clock a ways. Uh, I don't know if you're, if you use the video for your podcast or not, but if for, for folks that see the video behind me, I'm glad, to, glad to use it. Folks that see the video behind me, see a bunch of books on these shelves. And these are books that helped me or helped me grow uh, in some way through my journey. So rewinding the clock a bit, uh, a bit more than a decade now, uh, got out of college, got a big boy job, started making a little bit of big boy money. And I was always pretty thrifty. So I had plenty of money left over uh, to invest. And the first book that I picked up on investing, because I was pretty good at budgeting just naturally. First book I picked up on investing was actually this one, The Intelligent Investor, right right behind me, right behind me uh, by Benjamin Graham. And that's about value investing in the stock market. And it's really Warren Buffett's uh, philosophy. Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's mentor. Read that book and that got me into the stock market. I learned, hey, I can build wealth this way. And I did that for a few years and 
for folks that are doing the math, I said that was a little more than a decade ago. Uh, it's it's more and more every year. I'm getting older, uh, as we all do. Uh, for folks that are doing the math, you probably realize that that was kind of a good time to get into the market just naturally. It's just kind of got lucky based on my age. And turns out the stock market really kind of runs on luck more than uh, our ability to Indeed. go and generate uh, returns. So I did that for you know a few years, was making some money, doing pretty well, growing my wealth. But I was kind of doing the math and seeing this isn't going to really get me where I want to go. And in 2015, your listeners uh, who think back might remember that there was a crash in the price of oil that dragged the stock market down. And that right around that time, I was having uh, those you know misgivings of this, this math doesn't check out. It doesn't take me where I want to be. I was looking for other things, whether it was going to be entrepreneurship or, you know, I didn't know what was going to make sense, but I was listening to podcasts. I was you know, doing all these things that uh, millennials love to do. And I just so happened to pick up another book, although a, a digital copy, not the copy that's behind me, but got to make sure I turn the right way. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He, there it is. Robert Kiyosaki introduced me to cash flow, right? If you read these books, especially The Intelligent Investor, granted, it's been a long time since I read it, but no other book taught me about the power of cash flow. They kind of They'll talk about dividends from stocks and that kind of a thing, but they really lump it in with like price appreciation and it's, you know, whatever. They're basically the same. The price, the stock value goes up or you get a dividend. What's, what's the difference, right? It's all percentages and, and what have you. But really I think Robert Kiyosaki gives a different perspective, a different spin on cash flow, and also teaches real estate in my mind as as more of something that we can take control of rather than just kind of accumulate stock holdings over time because it, the the intelligent investor and a lot of other things like the fire movement they're really around just kind of accumulating resource accumulating wealth and you know in paper or what have you and then selling it down the road and if that's what makes sense for you then you know good for you uh go for it but real estate it really turned out and I learned uh, through reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, several other books, and then, you know, getting into it and doing it, that this is a way that we can really go and take the reins more and create more wealth for ourselves, our investors, our partners, you know, our families, however we want to do it, rather than just buy a stock or an index fund, hold on to it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and then sell it for hopefully a higher price down the road. Whereas we can buy these properties, fix them up, raise the rents, you know, cut expenses, all those kinds of things that we can take control of that we just can't do uh, with our stocks. And that that's what really got me started and, and maybe want to uh, get into real estate investing. I love it. I love it. Some great books there behind you. If um, if you're just listening, check out the video and there, there's certainly some classics there. So, uh, you know, awesome transition kind of mentally, right? It's one thing to kind of get into these books and get some of these ideas and maybe get really excited about it. Then there's the difficult task of transitioning that into kind of doing your first deal. So what did your, what did your first real world deal look like? That's a, that's a great point. And so that, that mental transition of, oh, so this is the way I want to go, but that, that doesn't get you going any direction. You have to still take those steps and and make things happen and, you know, pick your path and, and do deals and, and get into it. So the the first thing that I think anybody in the real estate space does is 
first thing you go to is, ah, maybe I'll buy a single family or I'm going to learn what all these things are about. And, you know, you've heard about flipping, you know, maybe see shows on HGTV or what have you, and you have some idea of it, but you don't really know how the business works. So what I did is what I think many of us do. And obviously I was listening to podcasts. I would, I went to uh, local networking events here where I live in Richmond, Virginia, and I was learning those different strategies, meeting people who are having success with flipping and owning single families, that kind of a thing. But I was seeing that, you know, these, these folks aren't really living the lifestyle that I want to live or, you know, these deals, a lot of, a lot of wholesalers, you know, they're not just not doing a business that I'm really interested in doing. And it doesn't seem to build wealth and have the impact in the way that I want to. So I just kept searching and searching. Eventually I learned about real estate syndication and these much bigger commercial deals that people were doing. And that, that just clicked. I was like, yes, that is what I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but that is what I want to do. And people have asked me over the years and I've reflected on this, you know, personally, like why, what, what made me want to get into these, these syndicated deals and into commercial real estate. And to me, honestly, I think it's, it's the scale. I love big things. I think back to the first apartment that I had when I graduated from college, the first place, you know, I'm on my own. Yeah. I had a roommate at the time, but we lived in this big townhome complex in central Pennsylvania in Lancaster out there in Amish country where I lived at the time. And, uh, I was driving to work one day, absolutely hated my job. I was completely miserable. Wouldn't recommend it, but I was driving to work one day, driving past the office of the large townhome complex we lived in. And I saw this again, this was a long time ago, but I saw a new Audi A8 sitting at the office. And I just thought that's got to be whoever owns this place. I don't know why, but I know people who don't live here, people who live here, excuse me, don't drive Audi A8. So that's an owner's car. And I think that was the first, you know, this is long before I started investing in real estate, but I feel like that was like the first thing that I realized that, okay, there's potential in these large real estate investments, you know, with the scale and everything. And maybe it's, maybe it's vain, you know, my goals have shifted over time, right. As, as my priorities have changed, I'm getting married, all that kind of a thing. Right. We get older, our priorities change, but I feel like that was the first thing that really grabbed me. You know, uh, frankly, I was meeting a lot of these flippers that were driving crappy old beaten up cars and I didn't want to drive a crappy old beat. I was driving a crappy old beaten up car at the time. Right. So maybe there's some of that vanity to it. I just think there's more scale. There's more money to make to be made. There's less literally getting your hands dirty. I like getting my hands dirty at my own house, you know, doing yard work and things like that, but I don't want to be swinging hammers on, you know, investment properties. I love paying people to do those things. So anyway, moving forward to, to getting doing the first deal, I decided that's the path I wanted to take. And I started getting educated in real estate syndication. So uh, the first event that I went to, I went to a real estate guys, secrets of successful syndication event in Phoenix, Arizona. Fortunately, my best friend from college who ultimately became my first investor and still invests with us today, all these years later, lived in Phoenix at the time. So I got to go sleep on his couch instead of pay for a hotel. So save a little money there, but uh, went to the event and I was completely overwhelmed. I felt so out of my league, out of my element. I, I, it might not seem like it because I t do a lot of podcasts for you know my show and shows like yours, things like that. But I'm a pretty introverted guy, right? I have a degree in engineering. This I, I don't go out and talk to people like for fun. I do it because this is how you know we make money in the business. So I got to this event and I'm like so intimidated. And I've been 
to other events like that in the past and local events, but I just couldn't, I, I, I like wasn't getting out of my shell initially. And I remember this uh, guy named, I'll, I'll praise his name, you know, as long as I can, Jay Hartley. I, I, we don't even have a relationship now. We're friends on Facebook. That's about it. But he looked over at me. He saw me across the room. He saw my name tag. He'd never seen me before. So I was standing around kind of awkwardly. He said, Taylor, come on over here and invited me to join his you know little group discussion that they were having. And that was like, okay, that that really got me started and helped me be a lot more uh, comfortable that way. So you know, he's somebody who had a positive impact on me at that event all those years ago. So anyway, pushing forward, continue to learn about real estate syndication, obviously going to that event, but doing so much more. And I saw that my first step into the pool could be as a passive investor because I had this money built up and I was learning how to analyze deals and meeting all of these syndicators. And I thought, hey, you know, I'll go for it and, you know, look for a deal to invest in. So I did, you know, I, I had met syndicators and got on uh, investor lists and, and invested in a deal in uh, Atlanta. That deal actually ended up go ended up going sideways on us a little bit. And, uh, interesting lessons learned out of that one. We, uh, we made money, but again, there were lessons to be learned out of that. But, you know, I think there are a lot of folks out there in, in real estate syndication today trying to teach you how to get into the business. And people kind of maybe poo-poo a little bit on being a passive investor to get started. Uh, but I think it's a good way to get your foot in the pool. Now, granted, it doesn't start your business. It just kind of furthers your education. Absolutely. But yeah. Great. It helped me that. learn. Yeah. Yeah. I, to I totally agree with that. And I, I tell people the same thing. I mean, you're going to get you get to see everything you want out of the business. Uh, you know, you don't want to bother the sponsor too much. They've got a job to do, but you can ask questions and things like that. And it, it I mean, that was big for me too, is just to make it real and tangible. You're obviously paying attention. You've got money in the deal. Um, I think it's a great, great first step though. How long were you guys in that deal? Was this a, you know, a full five-year deal? Was it a, was it a quicker turn? I think we, honestly, it's a little foggy now. I think we held it probably about two and a half years. Yeah. Um, and that was an, that's an interesting thing that I've seen, uh, you know, I, and I hate to say it, it sounds maybe a little pretentious, but I've kind of been in this market longer than it feels weird about this. Cause I'm like in my mid thirties, but I've been in this space longer than other people that I see out there and I've seen the market change and I've seen, so in that time, since I got started things like, uh, average projected returns that real estate syndicators, especially in the multifamily space, were comfortable projecting have gone down. They've compressed sure. and we've, you know, cap rates have compressed. But also you mentioned about uh, a five-year hold. You know, a lot of people were saying things like, oh, we're going to hold three to five years and you sell at that point. But I mean, honestly, how many syndicators were really holding for five years? especially in the hotter markets like DFW, you know, people were buying and selling properties in 12 to 18 months at that time. I think, you know, moving forward, we're probably going to see that slow down. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just a, a general observation I've seen in the shifting in the market, you know. Yeah, time. no, absolutely. Uh, it seems like, you know, everybody says five years, just because, you know, it's going to take you at least a year, 18 months, kind of get through your CapEx and your, your rebrand, your turnaround, depending on what the property looks like. And then, now you're at 24 months. If a recession hits, well, you know, you're not selling then. You might be at 48 months. And you sell at 48 months. You told everybody five years, nobody's really mad. You start telling people you're going to do 18 month turn, you know, 
<laughs> that's really setting yourself up for, for some negative expect, you know, negative outcomes and, and expectations there. But uh, yeah, we've never held, held anything five years. It's like, we're, you know, our average is like 2.5 years, something like that, but uh, that we could be changing. Right. I mean, we're talking right now and on December 1st, uh, 2022, we don't want to sell anything right now if we don't have to, right. Interest rates are sky high. Loan terms aren't great. You know, you're just not going to get the price that you want if you can hold on for another year or two. Most likely going to be a better, a more favorable sales price at that point. Hopefully, yeah. And I, I think we've seen in in over the years, you know, as cap rates have compressed, people have seen, oh, we can get out in you know two years or eighteen months at the value we hope to get out at in five years. Large, you know, we did some of our value add plan, of course, right? But also the market is willing to pay a lower cap rate and therefore a higher valuation than we had underwritten. So yep. yeah, let's take our chips off the table and just move on. And you know, can't blame anybody for that doing that, right? But we need to be aware of you know that those those winds possibly, you know, shifting, especially with rates going up. It's hard to imagine rising rates won't lead to rising market cap rates, at least on average over time. Of course. Yeah, of course. So LP deal, a lot of lessons learned there. What was, uh, and that was multifamily. What was up next for you after, after that undeterred or did it change, you change your strategy? What, what happened then? So I, you know, I kept working on it and I, prior to the, prior to the podcast that I host, uh, currently I had a different, uh, podcast, but it was not about, uh, real estate investing. Um, but kept working on it, kept networking, you know, hired mentors to basically help me get over, things like limiting beliefs. I had, you know, I think we all have those to some extent and you can't sure. really a hundred percent get past them permanently, but you can work on them on a daily basis to try to continue to move forward. Uh, and that made a big difference for me. So ultimately I was able to, you know, work with a group of folks to take down a deal uh, in the Texas panhandle on the uh, general partnership side. And, you know, that was well before COVID and we've, we've since sold and, you know, held that for, for a while. And there were some really good lessons learned through that experience as well. Um, you know, being on all our asset management calls and talking with our property manager and, you know, um, trying to really keep them on track because it was a pretty, I wouldn't say distressed, but it, it was a solid C-class property that needed capital expenditures. Of course, that's what you expect. Um, but you know, the the common thing is that the CapEx can come in unexpected ways, right? Things like uh, you might have burst pipes, you know, that that occurred to us, uh, burst pipes under slabs. And, you know, we dealt with it and it's it's influenced that the experience has influenced my strategy and what I invest in, you know, moving forward. I no longer invest in C-class properties because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but um, those unexpected capital expenditures can be significant and these days the pricing the the price differential between a class a b and c properties has compressed so much that to me it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense to invest in those more distressed older c class properties because you can get a nicer asset by yeah you're still going to pay a little bit more but you're not going to have those uh skeletons in the closet, if you will, with the newer properties. Yeah, hundred percent. So are you guys looking for class A stuff or are you kind of in that, in that 80, 1980s vintage, 
spot or what's, you know, what's an ideal uh, deal for you guys? If it hit your inbox, you'd go, yes, this is exactly what we like to buy. Yeah. Like 1980s class B. I'm not interested in buying over the line and moving the line. I think uh, it's a lot harder to quote, move the line in an yes. area than people kind of think uh, I'd, I'd rather buy in a, you know, a nicer area. We can't influence the area around us. Right. But we look for, I like operational uh, upside, right? If we can eliminate expenses by or severely reduce expenses by adding economies of scale, you know, we see properties that are owned by ownership groups overseas that aren't maybe as hands-on or aren't as involved or aren't as knowledgeable on what things should cost to have done. Uh, and I think that's an area, you know, for improvement. Uh, you just really need to know what you're getting into, and you can only. I think this is something that I've, I've a mistake I've seen people make. You can really only cut expenses so far. Right? Yeah, your that's right. Upside on income is is much higher than your potential upside on expense cutting. Uh, but there are opportunities to cut expenses if you know where to find them. You just have to be careful with that. You know, we we sold I sold the property to a guy once, and. Um... God bless him. He said he was going to bring in this new type of property management um, that was going to cut their property management expense. And I, I was like, from what? Like to what? It's property management's 3% of your revenue. As you know, as, that's your bill. <laughs> so you're going to cut it to one and a half? I was like, first of all, it's not really going to do anything for your PL. And I would be scared to hire a management company for one and a half percent of revenue, like they already are not making money. So I just kind of like uh, scratching my head on how he was going to cut those costs on an already like really small line item. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you there. It, there's only so much room to go. Um, there's really not a whole lot of room to go other than just kind of stupid stuff or not not negotiating with vendors and things like that, but there's a lot of room to go potentially on the income side. So I, I like that. How are you guys handling property management? Is this different third-party companies? Did you start your own company? What's your what's your approach there on the on the on-site property management? So uh, personally, so I work with uh, several operators around the country, and most of them have in-house property management. And you know, I mentioned earlier lessons learned as a passive investor in that first deal. And, you know, for the listeners, you didn't know this. I didn't tell you this, but this is the exact lesson actually that we learned in that first deal that I invested in as a limited partner. Essentially, the very short version is that the property manager was sort of a third party and sort of not a third party. And what I mean is they were a third party property management company, but the person who owned the property management company got general partnership shares as a as an incentive to help him to get him to perform, right? We think incentives are great, but really what that ended up doing is helping him think that he was bulletproof and couldn't get fired. So right. he basically stole money from us. It turned into a legal battle. And the, the sponsor on that deal, I'm not going to say his name, but he's been on my show and we've talked about this. This is not like a secret. He's sure. we've done an interview on in my podcast about this. I'm not spilling beans. Um, but that turned that hell that happened relatively early in our ownership of the property, probably after six or eight months that the the actual operator discovered that. 
Uh, and then, okay, if it was a third party property manager, you fire them, you you know find somebody new, and then you pursue them, you know, legal action. Uh, if it's a an owner in the property, essentially in the 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 holding company, essentially, well, then you got to claw back their shares, but they think they have a legal claim on it. It just it turned into a whole thing, and um, you know, I'm told that he was maybe doing things like this to to other people. I don't, uh, you know, there's things that I don't know the full story of because they were uh, investments that I wasn't a part of uh, in other situations. But to me, that's the the problem was that the property manager in that case wasn't a third party and he wasn't a wholly owned subsidiary. It was mm-hmm. kind of that quasi state in the middle where again, he thought he was bulletproof and couldn't get fired, which just led him to take money from us basically. Yeah. The worst of both worlds. Yes. So that is something that, you know, it's a bit of an edge case. Uh, it's not I've common. Heard it, I've heard it several times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I've heard other operators like make that mistake too. It's it, it happens. Right. And, and that's why I, you know, caution investors about that and, and share that story to be aware that you need to be able to fire the property manager in some way. If it's a wholly owned subsidiary and one person is misbehaving, well, you can fire that one person. If it's a third party, then you can fire them and find somebody new. Not to say that that's an easy thing to do, but it's a lot better than being stolen from. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be able to act quickly. We own our management company because of, you know, some, some bad experiences with third party management and you've got to be able to act extremely quickly, either fire the company entirely, which is warranted in plenty of cases, or fire the offending party within your own company immediately, if that's necessary. Um, but you, you know, you've got to be able to have that decisiveness. And if you've got a third party, but they're kind of a GP and I mean, you're just intertwining things that shouldn't be intertwined and you're, you're cutting yourself off. So appreciate you sharing that story. And that's a great lesson. I think for anybody listening, that's a LP or a, or a GP. Um, I think it's tempting because as GPs, we think everybody out there is working for equity, right? Cause that's mm-hmm. how our brain works. But a lot of the world is not wired like that. They just want to go out there and, and, and get paid. And so that dangling GP equity, um, which frankly is just potential future profits could go to zero, right? So yes. we work for equity because of the potential upside, but um, a lot of other folks don't, and that's fine. They can work for cash paycheck, W-2 bonuses. Um, I mean, that's how most, that's how most folks are, are wired to, to work for that. So keep your, keep your GP shares nice and tidy, nice and clean, <laughs> keep your, keep your roles and responsibilities, uh, well-documented there, but all, you know, great lesson and all, all these painful lessons in business, if we're smart about it, teach us new and better ways to, to do things. Right. So, uh, let's talk about asset classes. Uh, we've been talking about multifamily. I know you're involved in some different asset classes. So talk, talk, Talk to us about that and how did how did that evolve and what asset classes do you like these days? Absolutely. So I'm also so to take a step back, I love multifamily. There are a lot, there are also a lot of other things, uh great things to invest in, sure. right? So sure. uh right now I love self-storage and it's not just right now, it's more generally. I love self-storage and I have another uh self-storage book, AJ Osborne's book here sitting right behind me. And 
how I got into that actually was again as a passive investor. So I've been again, this is years ago, right after that first conference, I went to another one and and started building a relationship with a, a self-storage sponsor and started learning about that business. And by hosting my podcast, listening to other podcasts, started learning about it and decided, okay, I'm gonna invest in a deal. I invested passively and it went well. And as I continued to learn about how that self-storage business works and how value can be added and you know, especially, you know, the, the things like the eviction moratorium added some fuel to my fire. Now that to, to invest in, in self-storage, the, mm -hmm. the eviction moratorium did and did not impact us in different properties in our multifamily. Right. But it was just kind of the principle of the thing that, okay, I can, I should consider getting some of my wealth and cash flow exposed to things that, aren't dependent on, you know, basically being able to charge uh, tenants rent, right? Self-storage runs on lien law, which is completely different from eviction law uh, in most states. And you're really what we've found is that there are so many mom and pop self-storage facilities around the country that are just not managed in as savvy a way uh, as as they can be there are all these newer you know pieces of technology and tools that you can use to take a lot of the cost out of operating a self-storage facility and also to maximize the revenue so, so mom and pops tend to prioritize maximizing physical occupancy not necessarily maximizing economic occupancy and maximizing the number of people that are paying they just want to have people in there so they know They've at least got some revenue coming in and they've got different priorities, right? They're maybe retired. This is their only source of income. So they really want that income. They don't want to roll the dice at all. No problem with that. But we have other priorities, right? We want to maximize our return. And many of those mom and pops want to exit. So they want to sell. And we see that upside to bring in newer technology. I mean, just if you look around and, and drive around some more rural areas, You'll be able to find still to this day, mom and pop owned self-storage facilities that don't have a website and even the most basic website of here's where we are and here's how you can reserve a unit. Uh, there are many that don't have a Google Maps you know, tag. And if I, I'll never have a self-storage uh, facility that I actually rent in myself, I'll just get rid of stuff. I like to not have stuff. But if sure. I needed a self-storage place, I go to my phone, go, go to Google Maps and type in, you know, mini storage or something like that. But there are still so many of these mom and pops that basically run their, on people driving by, seeing the sign and calling and saying, hey, I need something. And that's not a way to maximize revenue. So yeah, amazing. Yeah. That all adds up to our, you know, ability to create value uh, in these facilities by improving operations and bringing rents to market and, you know, getting people out when they're not paying and getting people instead of paying in cash, getting and paying with a you know credit card or bank debit or something along those lines. There are a lot of other options, but um, just improving operations. I think there's, there's much more operational upside in self-storage in general than I think there is in multifamily. Um, they're like, we had touched on it a little bit earlier about, you know, cutting some expenses, negotiating with vendors and things there. There are ways to do that. Uh, in multifamily, but I think there's in that realm more opportunity uh, in self storage. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing to run a business without a website, but uh, they made it that far, you know. And so hopefully they're 
basis is really good when you, when you buy it from them and they make some money and there's plenty of upside for the next operator to come in and do their thing. Um, I, I, I want to shift gears a little bit Taylor, talk about uh, tech tools for your business that you use to run your business. What are some kind of things that um, you've used to automate and, and improve the kind of the way you just run your business on a, on a day-to-day basis. Any, any tools you love that you could share with the audience? Oh, I've got so many. Well, first I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on uh, when you came on my podcast quite a while ago now, actually, we'll have to have you back on soon, but we talked about uh, investor portals, right? There are a lot of right. uh, folks out there not using portals, which is nuts. And I know people who have lost six figures of money to basically wire fraud and you know, emails and all kinds of other things we don't need to get, get into. So uh, I have a portal, Invest Next uh, is a great, great option, but it's not the only one. There are many other sure. investor portal options uh, out there. I love Active Campaign. I use that for sending out emails and also as a CRM. And it's not perfect. Um, lately, the servers have been a little bit slow. Really, the biggest, I think, advantage of uh, of active campaign is its automation tools. They're incredibly powerful. Uh, and as you get to, as you learn to use them, which I have over time, you just see more and more power of being able to build highly customized automations in active campaign that'll handle things for you. Like if somebody comes to my website and, you know, fills out the form to uh, have a call with me, they might want to learn about our investments down the road. Well, they'll get redirected to my Calendly page, which is another thing that I use. But if they don't get a if they don't get a, a call slot on that page, they say, "I, you know, I don't see a time that works for me right now," or, you know, whatever for for whatever reason, I'm not going to schedule a call right now. Well, I still want to talk to that person, right? I still may be able to sure. help them, but sure. I don't have the time, or frankly, the memory to to manually follow up with all these people. So, I build a system in Active Campaign that follows up with people and a few times, it's not an infinite number of times till they either book a call or they don't. And if they don't, then they go into one bucket. And if they do, then they go into, you know, a different bucket. That's just one example. There are many other things that we have on the back end that help gauge whether, you know, I need to follow up with someone or, you know, we send out, you know, investor communications, that kind of a thing. If somebody's interested in learning more about a particular deal, but it's really the I, the automations that are incredibly uh, powerful of Active Campaign. Yeah, that's great. I've heard, I've heard good things about it, and specifically around the automations. I appreciate you sharing all those all those tools. I mean, the, these uh, software automation tools can save hours or hundreds of hours, depending on how you're you're structuring them. Um, well, let's let's kind of wrap it up with one final question. I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts. Now, you've been in the business a while, seen a lot of different things advice to someone just starting, or maybe to you, advice to your former self as you were on the very kind of precipice of this journey, um, looking back now with, with you know, the, the benefit of some hindsight and experience, what do you say to that person or to yourself when you were starting? The most important thing you can do is to commit. To commit to taking daily action, commit to investing in your business things like active campaign that's not cheap like for the most basic plan of active campaign i think it's like a thousand bucks a year which if you're just getting started you're like man a thousand bucks like okay you know i'm now investing in the system and that's just one example you know the the investor portals get pretty expensive especially as you you know move up there and you know depending on how much you're doing in achs and things like that but the more you can 
commit to the process and just execute on a daily basis, the better. And I've learned that both through business coaches, of course, but also through watching people who have, who are, you know, in a way I'd say colleagues in another way, I would say friends who I've watched become incredibly successful and they're smart people. They're great people. They're good people, but there are a lot of smart, great, good people out there. Right. At, to me, the difference that they had, the ones who seriously succeeded versus the ones who struggled and, you know, whatever, the difference was really the commitment to making it happen and really investing in the business and moving forward. I love it. I love it. S- stage wisdom there. And that's that's the truth. Um, I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Taylor. Well, if somebody listening wants to connect with you, learn more about what you're doing, how can they do that? Great. Well, thanks for the the opportunity. If somebody, if you want to connect with me directly and, you know, establish a relationship, learn about your know, deals, we're doing that kind of a thing. You can reach out to me at uh, Taylor at ntcapitalgroup.com. Or uh, if you want a, a free video course, I put out seven red flags in passive real estate investing. It's things along the lines of what we discussed today. You can, you can get that by going to passiverealestatecourse.com. Seven days, seven videos, seven emails, Try to make them really concise and help folks look for red flags in passive real estate investing. Outstanding. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll through and just see, click right through and connect with Taylor. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much for for coming on today. It's a pleasure catching up with you. And we're kind of closing out the year here, but I wish you success in 2023, uh, 2023 rather, which is right around the corner. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, same to you. All righty. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to DJETexas.com.